Hello and welcome to On the Battlefield with Father Michael Marcantoni and me, Father Joseph Collins, where we are sharing the Christian message of hope and endurance amidst the struggles and suffering of life. Good to be with you, Father Michael. Why don't you tell everyone where they can find us online and on social media? Yes, outstanding. Uh, I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here and to record. And of course, uh, you can find us on our main hosting site, which is Anchor FM, uh, when that shares out to Apple Podcasts iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, and uh, you can also find us on social media at uh, On the Battlefield Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And on our Facebook page, we put up a lot of related content, and that's where we've gotten most of our comments and questions from people. So uh, if you like what you see, what you hear here, uh, please share it out, uh, like, subscribe, and go to our Facebook page and uh, leave us a message so that we can make this as much of a dialogue and less of a monologue as possible. So that's Anchor FM, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Almost forgot Spotify. We are on Spotify and uh, on the Battlefield Podcast, Facebook and Instagram. The Instagram is not very active, so uh, go to the Facey Space on that. The faces of the space face, yes. Um, so we've been real heavy on the demonic warfare, the the demonic end of the spiritual game. Uh, but having just experienced the holy and great Pentecost, we thought it would be definitely worth our time to talk about God's end of the spiritual warfare and the homeland that we are defending and how it is uh, that we can call it our homeland. Uh, so we were talking about uh, you know the the Jewish festival of weeks and and that is our festival of of Pentecost and how 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 Pentecost is the completion of the Passover where we see God act on behalf of his people through passing over in the Old Testament and passing us over more perfectly in Jesus Christ and then through the giving of the law to his people at Shavuot or the festival of weeks, uh, exactly 50 days after Passover, and the more perfect gift of the Holy Spirit and the kerigma to the apostles. Um, so that's where we are going to go today. Uh, and it should be a really beautiful ride for us uh, to give us an opportunity to talk about the Holy Spirit and the Trinity and uh, how it is that we participate in them and what it is that they enable us to do. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, it's what it enables us to do. One of the things that I really dislike about like when, especially in our modern American context, when we talk about the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> we're, and, and we end up talking about him almost like the force from Star Wars. Like it's this, <laughs> this, Creating yeah. force that allows us to do things, and uh, and and to be fair, it's really difficult. The, the Holy Spirit is probably the most difficult of the three persons of the Trinity to really define and say something coherent about because we don't have uh, a, a concrete image. Uh, even Jesus says um, this. Even Jesus says in John's Gospel that the Spirit blows where it will. You do not know where it's coming from or where it is going. And so is everyone else who is born of the Spirit. That's in his dialogue where he's talking to uh, St. Nicodemus, where he, find, where he says, unless you are born 
uh, of from above of water and the spirit will not enter the kingdom of, uh, of God. Well, and then Jesus says, you know, well, the spirit blows where it will and you do not know where it's coming, where it came from or where it's going. So, I mean, even in Jesus's description, the spirit is kind of is kind of mysterious and difficult to really define. And then you tack on to that, that at least when we're talking about the father and the son within the Trinity, um, you've at least kind of got a visual like you, you have an image for what a father is. You have an image for what a son is. We could discuss all day whether they're the best images or not, but there's at least a mental image. And there's really no, there's no way to do that with the spirit, not properly speaking. Um, so it's, it's, uh, and, and it's difficult to speak of. And I think within, I think if we're looking at the formation of, of Christian theology, refining the language around which we discuss the Holy Spirit took longer than refining the language around how we discuss the Father and the Son. The, right. That was kind of the last part. Um, now, keep in mind, I am not saying the church didn't believe in the Holy Trinity. As a matter of fact, the, the Holy Trinity uh, and, and the whole, each person of the Trinity being called God, by the way, appears in the Old Testament not the new, the Old Testament, you see the Deber, which is the word of God, being called the being called God. And you see the spirit, which is uh, which is the spirit of God, also being called God. Uh, and of course, the angel of the Lord, which is understood to be the son, also being called God in several places in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, you already have Trinitarian language, but refining the verbiage around discussing the spirit took the longest, if I'm not mistaken. And, and it's not easy to describe him. I I've I like St. John of Damascus's way that he talks about it, uh, because he the way he describes the Holy Trinity, he said one way to think about it is the Father is the, the, the mind. He he's where the thoughts exist. He's where he he's he's hidden without the Son, because the Son, the Word, the, the, the Logos reveals the mind. But the, the Logos can only reveal the mind through the Ruach, through the, through, the, through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is hard to see and hard to define because his, the work that He does is to reveal the Father and the Son. So when we see Father and Son, it's only by the Spirit that they're seen. So there, there is, by nature if you will, a hidden aspect of the Spirit just by His very being, because He only ever reveals. But by the revelation, you see Him. He's present in the revelation. He's the, he's the means by which the revelation is, I don't know, for better, lack of a better term, empowered. In flesh? I mean, because, well, I mean, because the, the, the Holy, well, when Christ uses that example of the Spirit blowing, it's you, you, you know him by his works, you know, by what he's doing, by what's happening. So, I mean, when the Holy Spirit appears, um, things happen, you know, uh, the, yeah. the waters of chaos. Spirit hovers over them and everything is, you know, the, the waters above, waters below, dry land appear, you know, chaos gets ordered. Um, it, the Holy Spirit, whenever the Holy Spirit appears on anyone in the Old Testament, it's very dramatic. As Acts, Pentecost, the Pentecost at Acts 2 is incredibly dramatic. So the Holy Spirit 
may be hard to pin down in terms of how do we discuss him properly, but he's not not the most subtle. Like when he makes his works are manifest. Yeah, when he does something, there's a violence to it, if you will. Well, or the incarnation. The incarnation happens because the Holy Spirit descends and rests upon the Virgin, and what do you have? You have God become flesh. And then look at the life of the church. I mean, he comes in and in, in dwells human beings. There's, there's an incarnating, there's an enfleshing even of the Christian. And when that is, when that's taking place, there is and should be some, a, a dramatic change within the soul and within the person. Hopefully, hopefully you see that and you see that in the saints that when they are sanctified by the spirit and, and dwelling and working in the spirit, there's real things happening things are happening and there's you can't get around it the god's will when it's being enacted through the spirit cannot be stopped well and that's yeah and that's kind of the that that's really it that's that's the point um so one of the things though so but what should be said about this because we're not what, what we wanted to discuss wasn't so much um trinitarian theology per se as much as it was the purpose of this feast, but we're, we're going to have to talk about it. But the thing that I think it's lost for a lot of us living in our modern American context, when we're talking about Pascha and Pentecost is we don't see a connection for most people. Um, in Orthodoxy, it's helpful because there's, there's an explicit liturgical connection. There's all this stuff that doesn't, go back to normal until Pentecost. Like right. we, you know, at Pascha, at Pascha, the Kuvuklion is out, the doors, the royal doors and the deacon's doors are left open. The Kuvuklion is out on the Solea. The cross stays out on the Solea. Then at the leave taking, okay, the Kuvuklion goes back, the cross goes in the back, but the the corpus, the body, uh, you know, on the cross, the body of Christ on the cross doesn't get put back up to the ascension. Then you put him back. Then 10 days later, you get Pentecost, and the last piece, so to speak, of normal church life comes back, and that is kneeling. Like from, from Pascha to Pentecost, the prayer, O Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, which is the only prayer to the Holy Spirit, but it's in all our services. So the, the prayer to the Holy Spirit comes back at Pentecost. And that specific prayer, not that we don't pray to the Holy Spirit, but that specific prayer liturgically comes back at Pentecost. And we kneel again. We don't kneel from Pascha to Pentecost. So there's all this stuff that doesn't, that there, there's all this stuff that doesn't allow you to forget that you're in a connected moment. Um, however, comma, however, comma, when it, what there, the, the deeper connection is, you know, in Exodus, when God says, I am now going to, before the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, when God says, I am now going to make a differentiation between Israel and Egypt. What defines Israel is the Passover. So the Passover happens, but that moment's not really complete until Pentecost. When Pentecost is the giving of the law at Sinai. So what really defines, what really defines uh, the nation of Israel, the, which is the people of God. And John the Baptist is really clear about this. He says, don't, 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 uh, don't be overjoyed because you have Abraham as your genetic father. God can raise children to Abraham from these rocks. And he's like, look, 
what really makes you the people of God is you've celebrated the Passover, you've eaten the Passover, and you've been given the law. So now we've celebrated the Passover, the passing over uh, of Christ, uh, 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 the Lamb of God, slain before the foundation of the world, who passes over from life to death by not only filling our death with his life, but then bringing us from the tombs into paradise at the resurrection. Because if he has not been raised, then we are the most foolish of all men, as St. Paul says. And then he gives us that law inscribed in our hearts against which there is no law. Mercy, love, patience, uh, patience, long-suffering, these things against which there is no law. And you'll have the verse for that. I forgot it already. But, um, you, you know, what was the ver- that verse? What verse is that from? 1 Corinthians chapter 6. See, I, ju- I just know stuff is in the Bible that's like towards the back, towards the middle, towards the front. You know. <laughs> The um, anyway, but but yeah, I mean, it's this continuous moment of Passover to receiving the law, the law written on our hearts, the law, the, the true Passover and the truest law, the law of the spirit dwelling within us, that the events of the Exodus were but a pale shadow of and pointing towards. So what I'm saying is um, what this is, it's more than just saying there's the benevolent institution of the church starts to exist now. What it really is is um, this is the constitution of the nation of God in the kingdom. You know, what happened with Israel was just pointing towards this, but this is happening into eternity. This is his people, his nation, uh, his beloved Israel. This is our homeland. If we are on the battlefield with uh, our flesh and the devil and sin every day, that's the home we're fighting for. Right. It's it's a new and better way, like Paul said in the book to the Hebrews. But, I mean, and we can't forget that with Israel, that, that those 50 days, there were things happening. I mean, Passover happens, they get kicked out of Israel, they leave Israel, uh, not kicked out of, but they, they begin to, they're allowed to go worship their God. Then Pharaoh revokes his, his word, and then they flee, they get to the Red Sea, they pass through the Red Sea. And then they go out into the wilderness. I mean, a lot happened during the course of those seven weeks between Passover and the giving of the law. I mean, it's a big deal. So there, there's, there's, a, there's, Israel is now in the desert waiting. They're, they're waiting for God to reveal Himself again and to, to, to re, to further His covenant with them that He established at at Passover. So I mean, it's awesome to see that that God is the one who establishes and offers himself first to his church and to his people, and then his people in return offer themselves back, hopefully, right? I mean, that's our hope is that we offer ourselves to him in humility and repentance and love, but he always is, he's always the aggressor. He's always the one who first makes first contact and and he made that more and, perfectly well, and, known and in his spirit. Only, yeah, but uh, also what we we've got to we've got to what we're doing we're looking at this thing linearly. And if we really take seriously God existing outside of time, then also come also the reality is it's not just that these are things that are one thing is happening after another happening after another. These are divine realities that are breaking into our human experience at given points. But for the Most High God, they always are. 
That's why John speaks of him as the Lamb of God, which uh, the Lamb which was slain before the foundation of the world. Well, 33 AD isn't before the foundation of the world, but this is an eschatological eternal reality that is breaking through at this event. So the the forming of the people of God, the the passing over from death to life, you know, it's breaking through at Exodus, but it's breaking through perfectly more perfectly at Pentecost with the apostles, who, just like the Israelites are waiting in the desert, they're waiting in the desert of the Iperoa, of the upper room. And Exactly. So there's, a, there's an analogy there. There's, a, there's symmetry, even though it's an eternal thing. There's a symmetry, and, and the Passover, perfect as it is, there's still, there, there's still you're waiting for the next movement in the, in the, in the musical piece of, of God's beautiful art art that is our life you know what i mean yeah well, yeah well i mean but that's but so but that's the thing is so like i mean even look at for example right even look for example uh, and our our good friends uh father you know father stephen andrew stephen damick and stephen young they they talk about this in their own podcast uh, of plagiarize them momentarily uh, and give credit where it's due and he you know father andrew brought out a a, a great point in one of the recent podcasts that um, when we say the day of the Lord, right, the manifesting of the Lord, you see a reference to that even in Genesis, where it says, once Adam and Eve have transgressed, it says that they heard him walking to them in the heat of the day. Well, like my whole life, until I heard him say that, my whole life I've always thought about that, like, oh, well, yeah, it's Tuesday. It's, in the, you know, hey, just in this block of time. It's like, no, how about looking at that as in the heat of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is upon us, i.e., he is coming to set things right. There is... Justice. Justice is the is the maintenance of that web of relationships that constitutes covenant. They've just broken it. And now the Lord is showing up, hopefully to set things right. And if we're and what didn't set things right, there was a lack of repentance. They had the opportunity. Um, But think about that. Like even the day of the Lord, like that's all of this stuff is eschatological. Right. All this stuff is. Is he showing up? He's doing. So we see the Lord coming there. We see the Lord coming in prophetic visions. We see the Lord coming in the Annunciation. And yet there's still the death de parousia. There's still the second coming where he appears once again and everything truly is finally set right. We're given this period of mortality to to repent and, and, and make things right on our end, um, to make amends. At, I mean, you know, and, and you can do that with every instance, like where it says that God rests on the sixth day, or in other words, he's enthroned, and then he's enthroned at the ascension, and and Daniel sees Christ, uh, the Son of Man, enthroned. I mean, so so when is he enthroned? Like, it's always there, but it's breaking into history at these various points. So rather than seeing God do all these different things, no, we're, we, do you hear the different points where we definitively touch some eternal reality so very cool stuff but but what would you say like so but let's talk about so if we're saying that the kingdom is this reality this is the the promised land the the uh the the homeland for which we are struggling on the battlefield um and it's defined by the spirit so like we're not the only people in the world who claim to worship a spiritual being. And as Orthodox Christians, and as people who take the, spirit, the scripture seriously, we wouldn't even say that 
those other spiritual beings being referred to don't exist. Oh, they exist. We would just say they're not gods, right? They're, they're demons. They are malevolent, illegitimate spiritual forces that hold mankind in bondage. Um, so, but if the other people are talking about spirits and we're talking about spirits and we, and we describe spiritualities in sometimes similar ways, because we're all looking at a similar set of data, what sets, what makes our God, God, what makes our God different? You know, who are we, how is, how is, how is the Holy Spirit that we're celebrating at Pentecost different than all these other spirits that other people might be talking about? We, we had some, I really liked our discussion on that leading up into this. So why don't you dip your toes into that for our listeners? I think you just alluded to it in, in the accounting of Genesis that uh, fathers Damick and DeYoung were talking about is that the day of the Lord is God coming to restore the covenant and the relationships. And I think that's exactly what is happening at Pentecost and the giving of an oath. God gave us his promise through the Holy Spirit that in the Holy Spirit, his covenant is sure, it's eternal, and we have the promise of that in Christ going through the veil of the heavenly altar, the heavenly temple, and we have that res- restoration of, of, of dialogue, of, of relationship with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, because we, the Holy Spirit has now enfleshed himself in mankind. Christ was incarnate of the Holy Spirit, and now through Christ's resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit is now able to be enfleshed in man and restore and to provide and to begin the restoration of man to his to his calling, this, this theosis, this divinization, this actual relationship with God, as it was intended to be to the to the fullest extent that it can be, be appreciated and realized here in time bound life. So I think to answer your question more perfectly, that that the Holy Spirit is is very clear indicator as to what separates our God from all the other gods, because our God, none of the three of the holy persons of the Holy Trinity point to themselves. One points to the other and the other points to the other, never seeking their own personal glory, if you will, to, to speak so crudely of the uh, of of our God, but they, they don't seek the glory for their individual selves, but to glorify the other. The Father glorifies the Son, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. And you see that nowhere in any other religion. Not in the followers, not in the 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 big um you know, you have the Titans of the Greeks, as we've spoken of earlier, the Babylonians, the the God kings of Egypt or Greece or Assyria, you know, I mean, they all seek their own personal exaltation as where you don't see that in our God. What do you think of that answer? Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, you know, that's what one of the things that, I mean, for example, there's this, what, I mean, again, you know, I'm not saying anything new stuff is out there, but um, I mean, that's what happens with the, what's known as the succession myth, myth in theology that, you know, all these other, all these other mythologies you have 
gods that are replaced, old gods that are replaced by newer gods that are replaced by newer gods. And it's always violent. So like there's a Gea and Uranos, the, uh, you know, the heaven and earth primordial deities of Greek mythology. And then Uranos uh, is castrated by Kronos um, and, you know, defeated and taken over by Kronos, who is then defeated by Zeus, you know, and, uh, and, and then, you know, Marduk, in Babylonian mythology, you've got you got Apsu and Tiamat, and then Marduk has to kill Tiamat in order to take his place as the Most High God. So there's like a self glorification, a an aggrandizement of who can claw their way to the top of the food chain, who is you know who can beat their way to the top of the uh, the spiritual food chain, and then of course because you are going to become like the thing you worship, that you know look at the 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 imagers of those monstrous demonic deities right like these are these are savage these are tyrants giants tyrants who can who can beat their way to the top of the 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 human food chain and no one opposes them um whereas in the case of the most holy trinity uh there is no succession myth the son and the father are in perfect harmony and they not only does the father set the son up and have him incarnate and uh, send him forth. The son is not in rebellion against the father and doesn't even seek to replace him. And the spirit is sent forth by both of them. And they all point to each other and they reveal each other. Like the son doesn't say, hey, if you've seen me, don't worry about the father. He says, no, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. When when Philip says in, uh, in, in, the, in the gospels, like, show us the father. He's like, if you've seen, or is it Thomas? One or the other. But he says, you know, if you've seen this, if, if you've seen the son, you've seen the father. What, what, what's that's who I'm an imager of. He's not coming. I'm not coming on my own behalf. I don't do nothing on my own behalf. I only say and do what I see my father do. So the humility within the most high God, the humility and the love of this eternal community that is the most high God, unity and Trinity and Trinity and unity that sets him apart. That species unique, you know, um, that, you know, so that's, the fact that they point to each other, that's huge. That's, re- that's really huge because you don't, you don't see that anywhere else. And St. Saint, Saint Porfirios says that that unity and multiplicity and multiplicity and unity of the Most Holy Trinity constitute the eternal church. That the church isn't a, 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 uh, an organizational structure. It's the living, the manifestation in our human reality of this eternal mystery that exists within God of unity and multiplicity existing together. You actually find that language in the Old Testament and that's what we're living out. And that's a beautiful thing. So when we get called the Holy Spirit's temple, I mean, the temple is the place where God shows up, where we commune with God. So the individual Christian is meant to be the place where that happens. We're meant to expand the borders of where Yahweh's temple is simply by going there ourselves, which means quenching that within our own lives. I mean, how is that not tantamount to blasphemy in a very real sense? Yeah, I think, and I think that's why Paul could say that the one unforgivable sin is to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because how how in the world could man expect to speak ill against the one, the the promise of eternal life, the one who prays within him without ceasing. 
the one who is constantly calling and directing towards salvation, the one who is constantly pointing towards Christ, our great God and Savior, to the Father who sent him. How could how could a Christian possibly bring evil words, thoughts, or actions against the one who who's chosen to so condescend to, as to live in the heart of man and to go with man wherever he goes? I mean, think about that. The Holy Spirit is with you everywhere, like inside of you. Not, not like God is everywhere, but the Holy Spirit has chosen to take residence in your heart. He's chosen to be with you. He's willed. God, the triune God has willed to be with you in all places, in all times, in a way that we can't even describe or think about. He's chosen to take his residence within the temple of, of Father Michael, Father Joseph, and all, all Christians of all times who've, who have lived or who have not yet lived. And, and he's called us to exactly to, to, make, to make that charge outward and to live that life. So how in the world? What, what an evil thing, right? I mean, what sort of demonic thing could draw our hearts away from him like that? I, but, you know, where St. Paul says, like, do not quench the spirit, which, I mean, means that the spirit has left an avenue open where we can say, hey, we're, 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 we're at it. We want to break covenant. But, you know, I, I, what's hard about this is, and, and this quenching is the and blaspheming of, are different. Sure. But I guess where I'm going is what's hard about this is it's very easy to say this rhetoric. It's harder to point to that as the normal everyday experience in our lives. I don't think I don't think we quite experience it the way that we ought to, or maybe I don't. You know, I, I, I accept that it's real. I also lament that I don't think it plays out in my own sinful life the way that it should. Um I think that's the tension here. And it's an incredible tension. I mean it's an incredible tension because I think we quench the spirit, or at least I do regularly. There's multiple things throughout the day I mean, that I think is the Holy Spirit saying, hey, go do this, or gives you a prayer to pray and we neglect the prayer, or we neglect the person, we neglect the deed, the gift of alms, the gift of whatever, that, that, or, we, or we don't say things that we should say when, when they need to be said. Or, you know, I mean, how many times throughout the day do we, do we quench him and subdue the work that he would have us do in the world? I, I think often and regularly. And I think in part that's because we don't take accurate account of, of him in our life. I, don't, I think we've discounted him. I, th I think we've had a huge discount of, of the power of God within us. Well, you know, part of that, part of that has to do with how we, the, the extremely materialistic way that we choose to see it. Um, oh my gosh, so, yeah. But by, by being overly spectacular in what we expect. And I realize I just finished saying when the Holy Spirit shows up, there's big things. But by being overly spectacular in what we expect, and then by having, by divorcing in our mindset, anything that we can understand the the pieces together of as being just pure material and god's not involved we have set ourselves up to quench 
our own cognizance of the spirit's actions. Um, where, you know, where, where, like, like we would look and say, well, like, you know, like we, we ought to be able to see the spirit acting in the fact that like when I turn my car on, it turns on, like not just as some sort of metaphor, but by that, that, by the, 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 we, that the spirit's dominion, had, that the spirit's power has given us enough dominion over the physical world that we can put a bunch of elements together and they work in such as unison so as to safely propel a 4,000 pound vehicle and passengers. That ought to be a cause of worship and glory to God, as opposed to what we actually do is saying, well, yeah, well, we understand the mechanics and the engineering, and here's the math, and here's how you make it work. Where we went wrong is we divorced all of that knowledge from the spiritual content. So the only thing we've allowed ourselves to see is coming from God is just like bright lights and fiery flaming serpents. Like if it's not totally otherworldly, we don't see God's hand in it. Well, who, where does God say that's the way he, that's how he's being put in the box? God never says that's what to expect, but we've done that and we've done that. And, and we do it in the, in the art and media that we express when we watch movies or TV shows. We only accept coming from God that which is completely other. Well, since when? Whereas for the most of human history, this was accepted and understood that the spiritual and the physical overlapped everywhere. Um, you know, you're looking at human history up until about 250 years ago. Nearly every scientist was a priest. You know, people forget about that. Like, the, like a, a Roman Catholic priest wrote the scientific method. I mean, like, let's not forget this stuff. Like, why? Because it's only about till, you know, the, the, around the French Revolution and the quote-unquote enlightenment that we start to divorce out the material and the spiritual, which, they, which was never meant to be. And it causes a bunch of false conclusions. So what I'm saying is, it's not that the Holy Spirit is less active, but we have been brainwashed. We have been psyoped into turning a blind eye to all of the many manifestations that are there. And it's not that the saints, it's not that the saints have more or better. It's that they, they, they deprogram that out. Like you, you ought to be able to look, you ought to be able to look at an engineering manual as a spiritual text, as much as you ought to be able to look at, a spiritual text as a practical manual, because that's the way the ancient world worked. There is a reason why Plato wrote above the door uh, to his academy, let no one who is ignorant of geometry enter herein. The fact that we don't make a ready connection between geometry, between understanding the symmetries of the natural world and philosophizing coherently only speaks to the depth of our own ignorance and hubris in that ignorance not to Plato's mysteriousness, we've lost way more than we've gained. Yeah, and what have we gained? Good I mean, we've gained an awful lot of, of understanding, but we've also given up a lot of our understanding of, of our connection to the physical world. I, I, I like to call modern man Gnostic materialists, a little phrase I've, I've coined. I mean, and I think a lot of Christians, which especially... I 
You're going to steal plagiarizing that? that. I like Gnostic. But are we not Gnostic materialists, especially, I mean, and I see that in American Christianity by and large, that's kind of where I, the, the, the locus that, 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 that phrase was created because I look around and I see people who, who, who cannot have, uh, I mean, we, we have a God that of our own making and that just can't be connected with and, but we're materialists at the same time. I, I can't explain it or I can't explain it, but it doesn't make sense to me how, how we got there. I'm trying to figure out how we got to Gnostic materialism, but whoever that Gnostic God is, he, he doesn't exist. Like really it's not real. Um, but anyway, um, but, but you know, the, our homeland that we're defending isn't here on earth, right? Um, and, and where is that homeland that the Holy Spirit always points us and directs us to defend? It's, it's, it's our, it's our relationship with, with God. And in that, in, in the eschaton, like you mentioned, uh, previously, because where, where does he always want us to go when he, when he's calling us to do works? What, what are those works for? Those works, the works of the Holy Spirit are, love they are compassion they're the giving of alms they're giving of worship to god it's it's drawing others into the fold in order for them to do the works of god as well so there's this constant progression in the spirit towards the our our perfect and eternal worship of of the triune god and that and i think that is the homeland that we defend it doesn't need our defending I'm not sure that God needs us to defend him, no. But what it is that we're working toward, even if we can't use the word defend, it's it's eternal worship and participation in God. And and that is where we are being led constantly by the Holy Spirit. And that's what I think we so often quench is is even the worship. It's like if you say, Father Joseph, you did a great job on X, Y, and Z. And I look at you and say, thanks. Or more proudly or in more hubris say, yeah, I know. Ain't it awesome? I, I, in that very moment, I quenched the spirit because I didn't recognize where the power, where the glory was to go. Because I wasn't doing it for him or in him. Or if I was, I sure, certainly didn't give him the glory for the strength and the capacity. Yeah. And I, so I think the way... Gosh, you know, the, the way we, mm, gosh, I, I'm going to, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, you, you've, you've given me, I'm going to write that down because you gave me some stuff to think about that I, I want to, I just really need time to actually process. I'm trying to say something coherent about it on the fly and it's not coming, but where I think, where I think we can go. When, you know, when we're looking at what the, when we're looking at, because you're right, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us to defend him. But what he does will for his own reasons. And I think that's the other thing too. Like we've also got to accept that we can't, we're not going to be able to piece everything apart ever. Um, when we look at the when we look at the the final revelation of Christ, and then the, the title of John's of John's apocalypse is uh, the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's 
And, and apocalypsis, it's, it's unveiling, it's revealing. That's what it is. So what you're looking at is it's not that the world disappears and another one reappears. It's that heaven and earth are renewed and remade. The, the broken and fractured web of relationships are finally put back into covenant and things are made right. That's the idea. So it's, so what doesn't, so where that kingdom is, it's not in this world as it now sits, but the kingdom of God is within you and the kingdom of God is among you and the kingdom of God is at hand, even though we're still seeing that unveiling take place, what looks like to us over time. To God, it's broken through, but to us, we're seeing it play out over time. So we have the opportunity to make amends and repent. Um, for reasons known only to him, he desires to share his life with a family. Um, you know, why? Because he wants to. I mean, really, that's what it boils down to. Um, he creates a he creates an unseen family, he creates the angelic world. He calls, you know, these are these are the spiritual beings that are referred to in 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 Genesis as the sons of God, right? Um, some of which rebel against him, and that causes all sorts of problems. And he creates a, a, a human family called human beings that he calls his sons, and that some of which rebel, and that creates all kinds of problems. Um, why does he want family? Because he does, and, and that's just he chooses to be a father in these cases why because he does uh, we we're not always going to it's not that it's not that we'll ever know his motives but when it, whether it's the sons of god in the angelic sense or the sons of god in the us human sense who are who are greater than they are because we're actually made in his image and likeness and he becomes one of us not them um but in either case he asks us to share in his work he asks us to share in his task and his duty and his working of uh, of creating and, and reestablishing that web of relationships you know it's it's interesting what jesus says he says in the gospel he says my father is working and i am working still well the father has asked us to enter into that at the end of mark's gospel we're called the the synergy to the co-laborers with god so jesus says the father is still working scripture says that we are his co-laborers he is he is asking his sons to share in his work could he do it all himself yes that's not the point that's really not the point um why does he want a bunch of children to do it with him i don't know why did we? I mean, you just do. Uh, but that's his business, really. Well, interestingly enough, there's this one throwaway line that, once again, you'll probably be able to get the, you'll probably know the scriptural reference way before I do. But there's this one way throwaway line, which I feel is much more significant than we give it credit for. Um, and I was, uh, I was not invited to, uh, to give this. I, I was concelebrating liturgy yesterday at a, at a good friend's church and and i wasn't you know there were there were four priests in the altar and four deacons so i, I wasn't invited to give the homily that day um however one thing that i thought about working on if i had been there's a throwaway line in scripture where it says christ our god in whom every family in heaven and earth are named okay Everyone, no one talks about it. I never hear it get brought up. 
I'm like, you, Scripture just said there's families in heaven. Now, all Jesus says is that they are not married or given. That angel that in all Jesus says in Matthew's gospel is that in the kingdom they are neither married nor given in marriage. And they will be like the sons of God. They'll be like the angels. Well, okay, that just means they're they're not married or given in marriage, and they're not reproducing because they're not dying, but. Clearly, there's some sort of familial structure because I, it, then in the, the epistles, it says every family in heaven and earth. So there's some kind of familial designator there in heaven and on earth that is recognized by God and are named in G, by, that are named by Jesus Christ. Um, what in the world is that? And I don't know the answer, but I do know that when God makes covenants here on earth, he makes it with families, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their posterity. And instead of saying, hey, I'm going to start a whole new covenant, he says, no, we're going to make you Abraham's children. So the family just gets bigger. I do know that family is, that even though John the Baptist says, do not exalt because your flesh comes from Abraham, because God can raise sons to Abraham even from these very rocks, at the same time, the scripture also says, the Hebrews also says, did not David pay tithes to Melchizedek because he was yet in Abraham's loins? So your the way you handle your fatherhood to the nation, listen up, dads out there, the way you handle fatherhood to the nations is significant for your descendants 800 years later. That's approximately the accepted distance between Abraham and David, 800 years. And David's getting credit for the tithes paid to Melchizedek because he was somehow a part of that because of genes. Um, I mean, how how far, I think only God the Father can, can properly map out how far this web of fatherly familial relationships go. But we ought to see i think that that family homeland gravity we 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 ought to see it through that lens of like what are we battling the flesh sin and the devil for because apparently those are the stakes that god almighty says are at play i, I don't know what to do with that other than to accept it <laughs> and and try to um try to uh bear my uniform in a manner becoming the office in which I have been clothed. And I refer not just simply to priesthood, but as many as have been baptized in Christ and put on Christ. So for those of us who have been clothed with Christ, you know, how then do we live that out in a manner becoming the uh, office entrusted to us? And what else to say? But I think that's the battle. It isn't a battle of defense for God because he does, I'm not sure that he needs us, like we said, to defend us. But the battle is for, the, the battle that we're waging is for our own souls and, and for the souls of, of our family members and those around us. I think, I think that's the war. And, and that war is fought in repentance and humility because that's the way that God has chosen to fight the battle against the devil himself. And we, and we fight that war the way that 
our God fights the war and, and we fight it in, in love. We fight it through repentance. We fight it through, through, through humility. And, uh, you know, like Jesus said, he's like, it shall not be so among you to refer back to what we were talking about earlier is like, how do we know our God is God and what makes him unique and different? Even how he fight, even how he chose to fight the battle. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I think, you know, so there's like, so you ever, you ever like watched a, uh, a game, you know, some kind of sporting event where you say like, Hey, you know, it was their game to lose. Like they've got it in the bag. It was theirs to lose, or you watch like a professional fight and you're like, it's his to lose. And then sometimes they do because they're like overconfident and they didn't really prepare. Like that's, that's what happened. God bless her. Um, I was like everybody else in 2014, you know, I, I was a huge fan of Ronda Rousey. Right. But that fight where she finally got knocked out, she totally underestimated her opponent. Um, you know, and her opponent was prepared and hungry and, you know, I mean, what she did for women's MMA is, is huge. She was a pioneer, but what got her, right? It was her fight to lose. She did. Uh, she's not the only one. I've had plenty of fights of mine to lose. Um, and I think that's kind of the story of our battle in the spiritual realm. God subdues the chaos. He sets us up as his images in paradise. He fills us with his spirit. It's kind of ours to lose. And he gives us the opportunity to, he gives us the opportunity, right, to constantly reset and reestablish the web of relationships and covenant through repentance. So, like, when we get to the end of our, if we think about it like that, if we get to the end of our lives and we've consistently broken that web of relationships and we've kind of said, it's ours to lose and I'm, I'm dead set on losing it. I'm just going to keep losing it deliberately so yeah you can't say that to me yeah i mean at at, at what point at what point does like the reality of hell make sense like kind of it kind of starts to make sense we're like hey this is ours to lose and then you spend your whole existence saying well i'm gonna keep throwing it out at a certain point it's like well okay the time you had is done and i suppose you can live in your kingdom of, of chaos and filth, if clearly you so desire. Like at a certain point, hell starts to make sense. You're not talking about a bunch of well-meaning people endeavoring to follow God. You're talking about, hey, you're set up. All you got to do is stay on the path. And you just say, no, nope, we're turning the GPS off and we're going to go our own way. And then when the car breaks down in the middle of nowhere, like, how did we get here? You got here all on your own. Um, I think what's, I, I think the reason we have a hard time getting this across to people and our people is because it involves taking a really hard look at oneself. And we've spent the last century as, as a, as a, as an organization. Now I speak of church as an organization instead of the divine reality. Uh, we've spent the last hundred years as a church really trying to please people and set up uh, institutions that can, you know, that can survive. And to do that, you've got to do some customer service repping and keep people happy. Um, But in the course of that, we've lost the urgency. And in some ways, we've lost some of the sincerity. Like, 
I was thinking about this, like like when people say like, oh, well, I'm never coming back to church because oh, we talked about this in the last podcast episode. But if you say like, well, the church won't let me have the kind of romantic relationship I want to have, so I'm not going back to church. Well, if it did, would you? Maybe. Okay. So you believe, so if you're telling me you believe Jesus Christ is real, you believe the Holy Trinity is real, you believe the events of the crucifixion, death, and resurrection, the deposit of Holy Scripture, what the, what, what the Holy Spirit has done in the life of the church from the beginning of time through these latter days, and you're good on all that, but the thing that outweighs it is your romantic relationship, or you don't really believe these things. You don't really believe these things, but this this place where you have a social relationship with people is one that you are um, that you may or may not maintain that relationship with, given whether or not your customer service needs have been quenched and satisfied. Because if you really believed these things, then there's there's no outweighing that. There's no nothing is ever going to beat that as a consideration. Nothing becomes more important. And we've spent the last century pandering to people who tell us in every sense because they're willing to walk away. I didn't really believe you about all this stuff to begin with. I didn't really believe all that stuff to begin with. I really wasn't on a board. I've kind of got one foot outside the door. And I want you to beg, beg, beg me by putting things in order according to my whims. And when I'm inevitably not satisfied because I didn't want to be here in the first place, I'm going to walk and blame you. But the reality is I was already out the door. We're catering to the wrong people. Simon Sinek says it really well in some of his business talks. He says, you don't want to do business with everybody. You want to do business with the people who believe what you believe. Well, the church is not a business, but he's right. We're catering to the wrong people. We, we, people who don't want to be in the covenant don't want to be in the covenant. They're not going to be. They're not going to want to be in the covenant, no matter how badly you couldn't you contortion things around. But let's invite people who do want to be in the family, to be in the family, and keep the doors open. Say, listen, when you decide, like the prodigal, that you want to come home, Pop's going to come out and meet you halfway. As soon as you want to turn the car around and come back, there is a, there's a fatted calf on the spit. And a party to be had, um, you know. But like, if we, we we need to take this with that kind of seriousness, because it's not just like our organizational thing, and it's not our philosophical bent. This is our family, the family in which every the, the family in which every family in heaven and earth is named. Take it that seriously. It reminds me of of one of the priests I worked with uh, when I was a deacon. I said to him, I said, in your, in your priesthood, what's one of or the most important thing that you ever learned? And he said, invest in the people that want to be invested in. And that really echoes to what you said about business, right? Not everybody wants to do business. So there are certain people that want to do business and invest in them because those are your force multipliers. Those are the people who, th- through, who, who through you, the Holy Spirit will be able to work in the church because there's people that just personality wise, I don't always get along with, but other people in the parish that get along brilliantly with other groups of people. So the the Holy Spirit through disciple making is a 
at work. I mean, look at all the different ways he works through, through the people that the priest invests in, through, through all these different things. But that's an important thing. Not everybody is in the family, and, and not everybody wants to be a part of the family, even though the Holy Spirit is calling them, though God is calling them. And, and he called the church to be a beacon of light and hope and a, and a, and a safe haven for all, and that part of our priesthood is to be acting and praying and offering on their behalf in spite of their choices that some people will choose to rather to to not to say I'm good I got this I don't really need you I'd rather have my own way yeah I mean you know so it, like we might really look at, at, at hell as it's the you know the one of the things that one, one of the things that um my beloved western medieval theologians um got kind of wrong is there's not a hierarchy in hell you can't have a hierarchy with a bunch of beings of chaos that all want to perform the succession myth so they can crawl, so they can claw their way to being at the top of the heap. I mean, you can have a bunch of, you could have, and you probably do, a bunch of um, utilitarian partnerships you know, where, where everyone's pursuing their own goal, but will indeed stab themselves, stab each other in the back at, at the drop of a hat. And you see that play out in mythology, right? When you look at ancient mythology, right? Like, you know, very often, you know, pagan gods that were once working together work together until one of them needs to overthrow the other. And then, you know, someone's chopped up into pieces. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, like that's hell. You know, so like if, if the Holy Spirit is, if the Holy Spirit and the, well, if all three persons of the Most Holy Trinity are pointing to one another and inviting us to be in communion, like, uh, like Christ says, Father, let them be one as you and I are one, uh, uh, you and me and I and you. So let them be one with one another. I am the vine and you are the branches. Unless you abide in me, you can do nothing. Um, well, so we're invited into communion. And, and the hallmark of all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament are communion. But yes, like because the way that animals are killed in those sacrifices is never specified. The way that they're eaten, the way that communion is shared is specified in great detail. This is the burnt offering. This portion goes to the priest. This portion is eaten by the people. Here's what you do with leftovers in the case of the Passover. Like the way that the eating happens is really spelled out. The way the killing has happened is not at all. So the communion is the point. To make us like the object of our worship is the point. To be the image of the God communing with us is the point. And in the Revelation of John, the Apocalypse of John, it says, Lo, we stand at the door and the knock. I stand at the door and knock. To the one who opens, my Father and I will come in and we will dine with him. We will eat with him. So God's calling us to communion. So if we choose to not be within the family, understand that the thing that we're joining ourselves to is that hellish opposite of communion, whatever that is, that hellish opposite of life and existence and, and communion and love and, you know, God, I don't remember who said it, but it's a famous quote and it's so true. Like, the devil can't make hell attractive, so he makes the road there attractive. I mean, if you if you really look down it, 
But the road is fun. He'll make the road attractive. Yeah, the, the, the hellish opposite of communion might just be self-worship. Being alone. Being absolutely alone. Because what is it that the Christian lauds as the, the greatest thing? Communion. Communion with God. To not be alone, but to rather, rather to have the company of the divine along the way. And the person who rejects that chooses to walk the way alone. Yeah, maybe that's a good way to put it because, I mean, if you think about it, like even God doesn't exist, quote unquote, alone. Like he's not in isolation. Like that's the whole thing with the Trinity. Like even God, qua God, is a community. It is three persons in perfect unity. One divinity is one God. And yet there's still, because he's perfect love, still community even within himself, which, um, I mean, I, I've only got, I, you know, there's only so many ways to like, I, I don't know what to say about that, but yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe it's like, yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's, it's, that's where we're headed. It's just an idea, but is that, would that not just be hell to be completely alone? I mean, what, what do most people, most sane people that I know do not, like to be completely alone they would not prefer to be out in the middle of the wilderness completely alone most people enjoy the company of others we're you know, communal beings you know it's funny you say that so there is this there's this story from the desert fathers where um i forget which one of the fathers it might have been abba makarios i'm not sure but he, he's going around and he picks up a skull in the desert and he talks to the skull and the skull talks back to him because he's a desert father and that's what happens. <laughs> um, you know, so he talks to this skull and the skull tells him that he, he asks who, who you were. And the skull says, oh, we were, I was a pagan priest in, in, in life and uh, you serve the most high God. And, um, and, 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 the, and he asks the father asks this, this whole, like, well, where are you now? He's like, well, I'm in hell. And, uh, and he says, well, tell me about hell. And the, 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 the skull tells him that um, where he is in hell, there's flames going, flames farther down than their feet and higher up than their head. Like it's just, it's, it's crazy. But each one is stuck to the back of the other so that no one can see each other. And that's the torment. They're stuck to each other and no one can see one another. And he also tells them that when he, upon further interrogation, uh, he tells the saint that when they, when the Christians pray for them, they get a little bit of relief. They are allowed to break apart a bit and see one another a little. And that is their relief. The relief they are given is that they're allowed a little bit of communion. They're allowed to see one another. He says, we can see when, when you pray for us, we're relieved and allowed to see each other a little. And that was his torment. He doesn't talk about like searing flesh. He's like, no, the isolation is ended. We can commune a little bit. We can see each other a little bit. And then the saint buries the skull. But maybe, that, maybe that's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah, I mean, but isn't that what the Holy Spirit is, is endeavoring to do through us, is to, 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 to unite the entire universe? To, to restore to communion with God all that is and was and ever shall be. Isn't, isn't that part of our, 
our high call in Jesus Christ? And you see that in the prayer, right? If, if, if the prayers of Christians being offered on behalf of these pagans gives them some comfort, there's the, that, even that dialogue shows some, some eternal part of our, our purpose as, as Christians and as priests of the Most High God. But yeah, I think that's, that's definitely it. The, the idea that the real torment, the real isolation, the real madness it, 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 isolation breeds madness. Like that's why solitary confinement is considered like the worst punishment. I'll be honest. Like if I was in prison, I would want solitary confinement because um, I would be worried about things happening to me. However, um, however, um, historically people in solitary confinement usually go mad. They go insane, right? Like w- w- there was a, some, that some uh, prison in, in America in the 19th century, like they tried 100% solitary confinement and um, people went insane. It was, it was a hell house. It was, it was like the worst. Um, and what's real interesting is the desert, the, the description of people in the outer darkness is there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Well, that's an image of madness, right? So you've got an outer darkness where you can't see anything. You're isolated. And there's a wailing and gnashing of teeth. So now, I mean, how much of your being, if you're cut off from God who is being itself, so much that you can't image him and you're isolated. You're meant to be in community and you can't because you've chosen that. How much madness? How much? Right. Madness? I mean, the very depth of insanity. How much of your humanity can you lose? Yeah, and so, it's through choosing... To pure Luciferianism, right? I mean, Satanism is to worship Satan, but Luciferianism is to worship yourself, to want the glory Mm -hmm. and the power and the honor and all of those things for self. So self-worship. And we see that Satan was selling Luciferianism to Eve in the garden. Like, ah, he, he, he doesn't really know. Take this to yourself. And, and that, and that well, cuts us off. That breaks okay. the relationship, right? Where we become God, where we become self, well, self-motivated and self-directed. Remember, covenant is, well, but yeah, but a covenant is a web of relationships, right? And, right. and sacrifice are the, meals, are the meals that bind that relationship between you and God, right? So what does is, what is, what is the devil use to... Food. To, to trick you. Food. So now she's eaten someone else's sacrifice. So she's bound, now she's bound herself into, her and Adam have bound themselves into a whole new web of relationships. That's the thing. That's why that, it matters in the New Testament about the meat being offered to idols. You can't bind into a different set of relationships and keep the old ones. Eve has bound herself into the sacrifice of disobedience by eating it from his table. Right. And now through the spirit, we are bound to the new covenant and the new, the new offering of Jesus Christ, the eternal offering that is constantly set before us, which is Jesus Christ and his Passover. So we have to choose. We have to choose to humbly bow before our eternal God and to participate in him through this, his covenantal relationship that he's offered to us through Christ and his Holy Spirit. Indeed. So I, I think I, I, I like this. I think so. I hope that our listeners walk away from this with a better sense that 
being the temple of the Holy Spirit is more than just verbiage and being the church is more than just an organization like you are the you are meant to be the communion of God whereby his presence tangibly extends out into the world by virtue of the fact that he has called you his sons and daughters that's really it like he want he well he, said yeah and because and if you say well, why does he want me to be his son because he does i mean it boils down to God wants you to be his son, and he wants to give you. There's no succession myth. You don't need to take anything. He wants to give you everything that's his. In order to live in that, we need this web of relationships called the covenant. And because we have become so used to living in less than that, we don't understand its value. It's kind of like when you... It's kind of like when you try to give healthy food to people. You know, if you go into uh, very impoverished areas that only have access to very poor quality food, low nutrition, like where so like kids who, and this happens by the way, kids who know the apple flavoring in candy, but almost never eat a real apple, they will reject real apples. They will say that's not what apples taste like. Because it's it's they they have they've just been so saturated with the fake, very ersatz, poor quality facsimile, and we've accepted a fake ersatz, poor quality facsimile in uh, in the rebellious spiritual powers for so long that we don't know the real flavor. You know, taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Uh, Father, it was uh, beautiful to to d- discuss with you today, and may God receive any any glory from from the words that were spoken. Um, why don't you remind everyone where they can find us online and on the, anywhere on the interwebs, social media, etc. Yes, you can indeed find us on our main hosting site at Anchor FM, uh, as well as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, social and on social media. Facebook and Instagram at on the battlefield podcast. Uh, and like I said at the beginning, we don't really do anything on the Instagram one. So come see us on Facebook on the battlefield podcast and send us your questions and comments and share this podcast out uh, for, so that we can help get the message of orthodoxy out to as many as will receive it. I will say, I do want to say a, um, I do want to give a shout out to the, uh, to the, Father Gabriel Boyd's Marines in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, Father Gabriel is a friend and classmate of ours, and he's got a parish down in Jacksonville. And there's a bunch of Marines in this parish, and uh, I've been told they are uh, avid listeners. They all love the podcast. So, guys, share, uh, send in your comments. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you for your service. Semper Fi and Ura. So, uh, hopefully, we'll hear from you. Which also reminds me real quick, Father Michael and I have been kicking around the idea of doing some shorts to fill in the off weeks where we don't have full podcasts and doing some things to put up on on YouTube or other video streaming platforms. If that's something you're interested in, give us uh, some feedback on the Facebook page if you wouldn't mind. Uh, that'd be useful to, to know if uh, that's a, going to be a good um, use of our time, our God-given time. So please do that and thank you all and be safe, be strong and live in the spirit out there on the battlefield. Thank you. Mm -hmm.